Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is, we're starting a new year, but I thought we can't start a new year with just one final look at Christmas. Because I think in the look at Christmas, we might get our ideas for how we're going to proceed together into the new year. The genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and, of his, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Oheb, Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Isaiah. Isaiah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amon. Amon the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Iliud. Iliud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Methan. Methan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what an obscure genealogy for us might mean in our lives today. Open our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might call this particular text the forgotten chapter of Christmas. It's a genealogy. It's a list of names. Sometimes you think unpronounceable, but if you have a go, you can actually get there. And because of that, this, this portion of Scripture is a portion of Scripture we really tend to overlook. We don't know what to do with it. It's not often read in public. You won't find in lectionary readings this particular passage. We don't know what to do with it. We don't often read it in private unless we're, you know, doing one of those read the Bible in a year things. Hardly anyone ever memorizes this passage. Anyone memorize it? No, I didn't think so. And to my knowledge, it's never been set to music either. It's just a long list of names starting with Abraham, moving on to David, and ending with Jesus. And in between, there are some names we recognize as Jacob and Solomon, Jehoshaphat, and many others we've never heard of, like Hezron and Abiud and Azor. The structure is very simple. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, etc. One name after the other, listing the generations of the Hebrew people from their father Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, as history goes, this is a fascinating list. But for most of us, that's as far as it goes. It's like a story about the man who was asked to write the review of the phone book, and his summary was this, a great cast of characters, but a weak plot. 
Seems a bit like this when you read the genealogies, doesn't it? So unless you happen to know the Old Testament, of course, but even with, with the Old Testament knowledge, some of the names in Matthew chapter 1 are completely unknown to us, particularly the last few verses, because these guys lived in the intertestamental period. So the Bible doesn't refer to them at all, except for in this genealogy. We know nothing about them. So we might call this, like I said earlier, the forgotten chapter of Christmas. And we routinely skip that to get to the good stuff. But the Jews, the Jews of the first century, they have been quite surprised at our attitude to the genealogy. To them, a genealogy would have been absolutely essential for setting the story of the birth of Jesus. The Jews, they routinely paid close attention to the questions of genealogy. For instance, whenever land was bought or sold, the, the records of the names would have been consulted to ensure that the land belonged to one tribe and it was not being sold to the members of another tribe. You just couldn't put down your money and take the deeds. You had to prove you belonged to the same tribe. Genealogy was also crucial in determining the priesthood. The law specified the priest must come from the tribe of Levi. So the record of the genealogy was examined every time. Genealogy also helped to determine the line of the heir to the throne, which helps explain why Ezra chapter 7 and Nehemiah chapter Ezra 2 rather and Nehemiah 7, I know you've got questions about that chapter, I'm sure, contains lengthy listings of various people returning from captivity. So as the Jews were re-establishing themselves in Israel, it was crucial they knew which families historically held which positions in the nation. The same principle applies directly to the Christmas story. It says, in these, those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to his own town to register. That's in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. That meant that each man had to return to his ancestral hometown, the town from which his family had originally come. But the only way you could be sure of your ancestral hometown was to know your genealogy, the family tree history which is why Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the ninth month of her pregnancy. They had to make that long and dangerous journey because Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral hometown, a fact they knew by studying the genealogy. Now, why is this important, this passage? First point, why is this important today? You might be thinking like, well, I've got no idea. It was important 2,000 years ago. What's the relevance today? Let me suggest three answers. First of all, it establishes that Jesus was part of the royal family of David. That's important. The Messiah had to come from that. I think that's the central purpose of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. To a, to a skeptical Jewish reader, no question would be more central in his mind. God had said 1,000 years before that, that the Messiah must come from the line of David. You'll find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Messiah must come from the line of David. So at the time of Christ, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be Messiah. There were a number of others. Other men, they're imposters. They claimed to be Israel's Messiah. So how could people know who to believe? One answer, check his genealogy. If he's not from the line of David, forget it. He can't be the Messiah. And that's why Matthew chapter 1 begins this way. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is listed first, even though chronologically Abraham came first. Why is that? Because the crucial issue is not 
was Jesus a Jew, born as a descendant of Abraham, but rather was he a direct descendant of David? In order for Jesus to qualify as the Messiah, he must be the literal physical descendant of David in some way. His right to the throne is determined by his genealogy, which establishes beyond question he is indeed the literal descendant of David. That's the first reason why this, this passage is important. Secondly, it demonstrates that Jesus Christ had historical roots. That's important too. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time had fully come, that phrase is the idea of a, of a fruit being ripe and ready to pick. It's the moment of harvest. So that is when, when God has perfectly prepared every detail of history, he sends his son into the world. That's fascinating. Historians have known for years that something at the time of Christ was going to happen. There was a widespread expectation that something big was going to happen. The now extinct religions of Greece and Rome held out a hope that a deliverer would come from heaven. It's interesting. These are not Christians. They were waiting for a deliverer to come from heaven. The Jews themselves knew a Messiah would come according to the prophecies. The Persians studied the heavens and knew that the time was at hand. So there was this desire, a hope, a yearning, a deep throbbing feeling in the hearts of humanity that someone must appear who's going to radically change the world. Now, I know they weren't all consciously expecting Jesus, but there was a yearning that was undeniably there. And into that expectant world at that time, God sent his son at just the right time, in just the right way. So Matthew chapter 1 is telling us that Jesus Christ had roots. He had a family tree. He didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't appear magically on the scene. But at the perfect moment in history, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He has a family tree, a human family tree. He had a mother and a father and a history. He's not some fictional character like the gods on Mount Olympus. No, he's a real person born into a real family. Family, And Galatians 4 verse 4 teaches us that behind all of that stands God who's superintending the whole process throughout history. So Matthew chapter 1 is teaching us that Jesus had roots. He had a history. He had a family. He came from somewhere. But why else is this passage so important? Well, it's a chronicle of the grace of God. Now I want to get into some meaty bits. If you study these names in detail, it's almost as if God had pulled together really quite a rogues gallery. Now I've already said we don't know every person on the list, but of the ones that we do know, nearly all of them are notable moral failures in their spiritual resumes, if you look closely. For instance, Abraham, he lied about his wife Sarah. Isaac did exactly the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer. And Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh, the most evil king that Israel ever had. And so we could go on. It's not a list of some plaster saints. Some weren't these guys. I don't think were saints at all. The best of these men had flaws. And some were, were so flawed it's almost impossible to see any good points. Now, how does this show the grace of God to you and me? It's simple. 
It shows the grace of God because people like this make up Jesus' family tree. A murderer is on the list, a fornicator is on the list, an adulterer is on the list, a liar is on the list, a deceiver is on the list. Think about it. Most of these men were great sinners. But they're in the family tree. And that brings me to my second observation, really, about this list. It includes four women. That's interesting. And that's unusual because Jews made the genealogy. They normally, they did, normally didn't include the women on that list. They just traced the family tree from father to son. But Matthew chapter 1 includes four women in Jesus' family tree. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All of them are very unlikely people. With the exception of Ruth, none of them had an exemplary character. So let's have a look at these women for a moment. I want to study these women for a bit. Tamar, the first one. Her story, probably unknown for most of us, is found in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, grandson of Abraham. All you need to know is that Judah had a son named Ur, who married a Gentile woman named Tamar. Ur died, and his brother Onan rose up to do his brotherly duty by marrying Tamar. But he too suddenly died, leaving Tamar both husbandless and childless. A kind of twin curse in those days. And because she was impatient and unwilling to wait for God to supply her need, she hatches a scheme to cause her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. Now her plan is simple. She dresses up as a shrine prostitute. She seduces Judah into sleeping with her, whereupon she becomes pregnant and gives birth to twin boys. Perez and Zerah. And when she's confront, she confronted Judah with the truth, he says, quite rightly, she is more righteous than I. But when I think about this story, no one actually looks real good in this story. It reeks of greed, deception, illegitimacy, prostitution, sexual lust. There's even the hint of incest in the whole deal. I mean, for goodness sakes, she's his daughter-in-law. You don't sleep with your daughter-in-law. Eh? So whatever you can say about Judah, well, it's not really good. And you cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, make Tamar look good. She, she's only just a bit less bad than her father-in-law. What she did was evil, wrong, immoral. She truly acted like a prostitute, even if she wasn't one, by her trade. And that's all we know about Tamar. There really isn't a happy ending to this story. She's just a footnote in biblical history, and an unsavory one at that. The story of her encounter with Judah is a story of human frailty and weakness. The weakness and the sinfulness of human flesh. That people like Judah and Tamar would be included in the line of the Messiah sends a very strong message about the pure grace of God. Neither one deserves it, but both are on the list. Then there's Rahab. Let's have a look at the second woman, Rahab. Most of us know a bit more about her. Remember, Rahab was the prostitute. She was a prostitute. The previous one acted like one. This one was one. But that's not all. Rahab was also a Canaanite. That's a problem. Because they were the hated enemies of Israel. Her most exemplary deed was she told a lie. <laughs> Think about it. A prostitute, a Canaanite, and a liar. You wouldn't think she'd have much of a chance of being on the list, but there she is. Now, her story is tied in with the larger story of Joshua's conquest of the walled city of Jericho. When Joshua sent spies into the city, Rahab hid them 
in her house in exchange for her safe passage out of the city. They promised to spare her and her household when the invasion took place. All she had to do was hang a scarlet cord from a window so the Israelites could identify her house. She agreed, she hid the spies, and when the king of Jericho sent messengers asking her to bring out the men, she lied and said, oh, they've already gone. They left the city. When in fact they were hiding on the roof. She let them out of the window on a rope, whereupon they returned to Joshua. Now, it's a great story, that one. There's lots of lessons in that. But we mustn't miss the point. Rahab was a prostitute. And that was her trade. The men hid there because people would be accustomed to seeing strangers coming and going from her door at any time of the day and night. So we can't also deny the fact that Rahab, she told a bald-faced lie. She lied about where these men were. So is there anything good we can say about her? Yes, there is. She was a woman of faith. Don't take my word for it. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, By faith, Rahab. A woman of faith. There she was. She was a believer. And she was motivated by her faith. And when the invasion came, she was spared. And in the course of history, she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. A prostitute, a Canaanite, and a liar. And also a woman of faith. She made the list. She's part of Jesus' family tree. Now, let's have a look at another interesting woman, Ruth. The most significant point about Ruth is that she too was not a Jew. She was in fact from the country of Moab. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. On that dreadful day, Lot escaped Sodom with his wife and two daughters. His wife was turned into a pillar of salt, but Lot and his daughters, they found refuge in a cave. His daughters evidently had been badly affected by their time in Sodom because they conspired to lure their father into sleeping with them. On successive nights, they got Lot drunk and he slept with them. Both sisters got pregnant and gave birth to two sons, one named Moab and the other named Amon. These two boys, born out of incest, grew up to found nations that would eventually become both incredibly evil as well as the enemies of the nation of Israel. The Jews hated the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they wanted nothing to do with these people. The book in the Bible which bears her name tells of the story that blossomed between Ruth the Moabites and Boaz the Israelite. They're a very unlikely couple, but in God's providence, they're brought together in marriage. And they had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, the king. Making Ruth David's great-grandmother. That's how a person from the hated nation of Moab enters the line of the Messiah. Isn't that fascinating? Then there's Bathsheba. Now, how do I find her on this list? She's not even mentioned. Have a look at verse 6. It tells us that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. There she is. She doesn't even get a name mentioned, but we know that's the one that's being spoken about here. Now, the story of Bathsheba's adultery with King David is so well known, I don't think I need to tell you about that one. Suffice it to say that adultery was only the beginning. Before the scandal was over, there was lying, there was a royal cover-up, and ultimately there was murder. As a result, the child conceiving that night died soon after birth and David's family and his empire began to crumble. Eventually David married Bathsheba. They had another son, Solomon. 
the wisest man who ever lived. Quite a result for a union that begins with adultery. There's dirt all over this episode, isn't there? But don't miss the main point. Bathsheba made the list. Her name isn't there, but she's mentioned nonetheless. So before going on, let's think about these four women for a moment. Tamar, there's incest, immorality, feigned prostitution, a Gentile. Rahab, prostitute, lying, deception, a Canaanite. Ruth, a woman born from Moab, a nation which is born out of incest. And Bathsheba, the whole story of adultery. Four very unlikely women. They are Gentiles. Three, three are Gentiles. Three involved in some form of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One's an adulteress. All four are in the line that leads to Jesus. Now why? Why would God include people, women, like that? It's not just women. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. They were sinners too. Why include people like that in the family tree of Jesus? I think there are three answers to that question. First of all, God does this to send a message to self-righteous people. Matthew was especially written for the Jews. Many of their leaders, the Pharisees in particular, they were self-righteous and judgmental towards others. They looked down their nose at everybody and found fault with all the others. They truly thought they deserved eternal life. And what a shock it would be re to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars, murderers, thieves, adulterers and prostitutes. Not a pretty picture. Not a clean family tree. This list is a stinging rebuke against that kind of judgmental, self-righteous attitude. Do you know what this means? Jesus was born into a sinful family. He came from a long line of sinful people in his physical family tree. So first of all, there's a message to self-righteous people. Secondly, God includes this list so that his grace can be richly displayed. If you come from a family like this, you can't exactly boast of your heritage, can you? Unless you're an Australian, then being, being a child of a convict is really cool. But most of the time, you can't. Now surely these people, they, they, they had rulers and kings in their ancestry, but they're also sinners. So here's a question for you. Can a prostitute go to heaven? Can an adulterer go to heaven? Can a murderer go to heaven? Can a liar go to heaven? You better answer yes, because Rahab and David are both going to be in heaven. And Rahab was a prostitute and a liar, and David was an adulterer and a murderer. So when you read these stories, these women and the men that are on the list, you aren't supposed to focus on their sins, but you're supposed to focus on the grace of God. The hero of this story is God. He's the real hero. His grace shines through the blackest of human sin as he chooses flawed men and women and places them in the family tree of Jesus. The point of the exercise is he wants us to focus. He wants us now to focus in on Jesus because many people are intimidated by Jesus. Why is that? Well, when you think about it and you talk to folks in general, they connect Jesus with what? Religious paraphernalia, big sanctuaries, massive churches, stained glass, beautiful choirs, formal prayers, 
and all that stuff. They look at all the trappings and it's very intimidating to them. To many in the world today, Jesus, oh, I can't associate with him. He belongs to all that stuff and I don't belong to that stuff. Well, the genealogy in the Bible lets us know that Jesus had a background a lot like yours and mine. Look into your own family tree. I'll forget about family tree. Look in your own heart. There. He called himself the friend of sinners. He said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he proves it with his family tree. Now, why am I preaching about all this stuff at the beginning of a new year? Because this helps me, and I hope it will help you, in how are we going to start a new year together? It's really important that we understand that and think about that from how are we going to start a new year together? Because some of you don't feel too good about the last year. I know that. Some are feeling angry. Some are feeling hurt. There are some issues that seem to be still unresolved for some folks. A few are disappointed with me. Behind all that is the question we need to ask of God. Why does God let all this happen? Are we still even useful to him? Look, I'm not here to argue the rights and the wrongs of any situation today. But note, Jesus understands the way you feel. He understands you. He came from a disreputable family. His family tree was decorated with notable sinners. He knows all about dysfunctional family situations. We are a church family. And that sometimes means dysfunctional family. That's just reality. But when you look at Jesus' family tree, I know that he knows and he understands. And he says, I want you still in my family. I want you to be together in my family. As broken and horrible as you might be, you belong. I own you. I want you. Be mine. My final point should greatly encourage you, I think. No matter what your past, Jesus can save you and he can use you. Now, don't put up your hand, but are there any murderers here? <laughs> any prostitutes? Any adulterers? Any liars? Any cheaters? Any angry people? Any thieves? Any hypocrites? Any sinners? Just keep your hands down. There's a few I know. Good news. No matter what you've done in the past, Jesus can save you. If a prostitute can be saved, you can be saved. If a murderer can be transformed, you can be transformed. If an incestuous person can be saved, there's hope for each one of us. No matter what your past looks like or what your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give each one of us a brand new, fresh start. There's a lot of dysfunction in Jesus' family tree. There's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of pain. But he knows exactly what you've gone through last year. So I hope you won't skip reading these readings in the Bible and pondering them. It's an unlikely list of unlikely people. And actually, maybe even the greatest chapter of God's grace in the Bible is this family tree. These forgotten names from the past, God uses to turn a spotlight of his, on his, of his holy grace on fallen men and women. And through their lives, we can see what the grace of God can do. And I firmly believe, I firmly believe that Jesus will do what he promised to do. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, I will build my church. Let's put Doyleson there. I will build Doyleson Church. 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I believe that to be true. Brothers and sisters, I believe that to be true for each one of us. We belong to the kingdom. We are his children. We will go forward and we will continue to grow regardless. Jesus says he'll build my church. It's up to him to do that work. We just follow along with him. So as, a, as we start a new year together, realize that you and I are the people that Jesus came to save. And because we are saved, we need to be like him. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Reach out with a love that covers a multitude of sins. Let's enter the new year as the body of Christ in this place. Let's move together as his people, following after Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this incredible list of people we've been able to read about and learn about today. Thank you for the way that you've used the most dysfunctional lot to make something incredible, a huge family of the Son of God. Thank you, Father, that we belong to the family as well and that we also have our family trees and we also have our dysfunction and we also have our issues. Yet we know that you, Lord Jesus, said, I'm prepared to die for you. It was whilst we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And we thank you, Lord. And we thank you for the wonderful promise you've given us as we start a brand new year that you are going to build your church. And nothing is going to overcome it. Thank you for that hope that you place in each of our hearts. Father God, I pray that you will continue to use us, bind us together with the love of Christ, enable us to love and to forgive and to reflect you to this world during this coming year, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.